Hello, Joel here. I've got a new book out. It's called Be Funny or Die. How comedy works and why it matters. And it's about how comedy works and why it matters. Why human beings tell jokes and then what that tells us about being human beings. So if you're a human being and you enjoy laughing and then want to know what the hell's going on with that, it's probably a pretty good book to read. It's called Be Funny or Die. It's in shops. You can buy it. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And welcome to Rule of Three, a podcast about comedy. I'm Joel Morris. I'm Jason Hazley. And as usual, we're joined by someone who makes comedy to talk about something funny that they love. By taking it apart, maybe we'll learn something about how comedy works, or we'll just quote bits from it and giggle until we're finished. Both approaches are valid. Our special guest today is award-winning and brilliant director... Paul King. Ooh. Hello, Paul. Hello. A, a touch of Hollywood on Rule of Three. <laughs> the stardust. You can taste it in the air. Can you hear the helicopter outside? <laughs> Just departing. Yeah. It made a good. right racket. Exactly. That's how I arrived now. <laughs> uh, Paul, Paul's potted around the corner yeah. from where he's working. <laughs> um, I stopped in, yeah, I stopped in Pret. And so the first thing I did was wipe some of the pastry off my... Jumper. We have to start by saying thank you on behalf of the entire fucking planet for Paddington and Paddington 2. Two yeah. films which have justly done so well. Like, you're very kind and thank you. Uh, I feel I should share with your listeners that you uh, worked many long hours on the scripts and were hugely helpful across both of them and They're, continue to be so. Which is Those are lovely writers' rooms. They're some of my favourite things. I, it's one of those jobs that whenever the the offer comes to I just drop everything for because oh, it's kind. just a nice room to be in. You just get good brains all together to bash. Yes, the ideas sometimes out. the head against the wall. I remember yeah. there was a long Easter weekend. Yes. Do you remember our we long did a Easter weekend? We couple of bank holidays where we didn't yes. see the family. we did Good Friday through to Easter Monday and it was like yep. this four days in the edit <laughs> when nothing was working and I knew we had reshoots and uh, you heroically saw me through. It was, was an, I mean, it was a total education. I refer to it a lot. It's one of those jobs I learned so much on. Yeah, and it yeah. was the thing that we learned was starting off. You you came to us. We'd sort of seen some early drafts of the script and things, 
and it was seemed to be in fairly decent shape and it was a nice thing and you're obviously the right person to do it because you love Paddington you had the right spirit for it and it steered it away from having a wise-cracking American yes. sidekick in he it. never crosses his arms and looks yeah. sassily at the camera there was the risk <laughs> of it going sort of a bit sort of CGI Scooby-Doo um, and it Either. seemed to be in safe hands and then you call up to sort of say, can you come and do some emergency work on, on Paddington? And we thought, oh, it'll be some ADR for the bear because that's the last bit you'll do is the voice and the lip sync. And yes. maybe it'll be sass up some one-liners <laughs> and turning up and you're going, right, we're going to rip this entire film apart. We've got it all shot. What can we do with this? Yeah. It was amazing. Well, it's a funny old film to work on. And, and I think it was a, for me, it was a great education. This sounds terrible because I had made a film before that. But it was the first sort of proper film in the sense Are you sense pretending of Bunny a, and the Bull is not a proper film? Well, Because I really like that film. I, I yeah. love it too and obviously I, I worked long and hard on it but I suppose it was the first thing where I kind of went it, it's attempting to be a piece of commercial cinema rather than a kind of passion project. S- yeah, something there. you just kind of fancy making. Bunny was much more sort of following random instincts and kind of thoughts and obviously trying to write a script but I suppose because it spectacularly failed to connect with more than about 12 people worldwide I thought <laughs> now I'm being given all the people who like Bunny and yeah, the Bull yeah we meet every Christmas it's a lovely uh, you know we go support group we just take take the back of the coach and horses and it's, it's really not I mean a couple of tables really all but, in cosplay uh, all dressed up as Simon exactly or a clockwork ball I mean obviously like, I love it to pieces but I suppose this was the one where I kind of went well also having then seen it with an audience and you learn what works and you learn what doesn't work to a certain extent and I really wanted to write a piece of cinema that felt like a movie rather than feeling like that sort of slightly shonky homemade thing that I love you know I suppose Bunny and the Bull I wanted to feel like a Jim Jarmusch film or a kind of you know something slightly eccentric and indie infused and warpy. Was it scary? Or was it a scary thing to sort of suddenly say, actually, my comfort zone, because you've done the bouche and things like that, my comfort zone is these sort of slightly wonky things for a very niche audience, to say, probably the biggest jump you can make then is say, I will do something for a mass audience. Uh, yes, it was scary because I didn't know whether I could do it or not. I mean, it's very easy to look down your nose at commercial cinema and go, look at us over here in the back of the coach and horses. And, you go, you know, but, and equally, I felt that children like in in a funny way I was sort of slightly anxious about taking it for a number of reasons and also because it was a kind of kids film and I didn't want it to be one of those dreadful CGI reboots that seemed to be doing the rounds and so and, and I was nervous as to whether I would be kind of pushed into that box and then end up spending years making something I really didn't like but David said all the right things and I kind of went oh well I sort of felt it could be a mixture of kind of this is David Heyman, Heyman, Heyman Harry yes Potter. sorry yes uh, the producer and who was sort of interviewing me and and Rosie Rosie Allison the executive producer and and when I sort of said oh, I want to do something somewhere between the kid and Wes Anderson and Jean-Pierre <laughs> Jeunet they went great that's what we want and I kind of went and I really don't want it to be one of these super glossy CG feeling there was a kind of a, I mean yeah. there's nothing wrong with it there's a kind of a the, you're trying to avoid Stuart Little well actually I think Stuart Little's one of the, the, I, the good ones I've suddenly realised I picked one that isn't a bad one but I mean isn't there, hot there was, you could choose as something yes, I there, wanted to a lot to of these things where they dropped a CGI creature into it and I think people's initial reaction to the first photographs of, of Paddington were oh it's going to be one of those yeah the first photograph was very Poor, poor choice. I mean, it was. Uh, it was. Uh, was that the one of him on the railway platform? No. Oh, well, that's okay. He's like a silhouette because for a long time we hadn't sort of finished designing him, and then we were in the middle of the reshoots that we did after we'd had yeah. our Easter weekend, and I was burning the candle at both ends, and this sort of image was released, and it was basically just sort of he had no expression. He was just sort of standing still, like a plasma like face, like Michael Myers. Yes, very disturbing kind of uh, alarming fixed grin on his face, and you just forget when he moves, he looks nice, but it was one of those things where you go I, I do remember saying I just I just can't get involved in this right now I'm sure it'll be fine 
and then yeah. going, no, you have to be involved in everything. It's not always fine, even though brilliant people were sort of taking the lead. There, in that. there was. I, I'm not. I'm not imagining this, am I? In the very, really early drafts of it, when it was at Warner's, there was an American girlfriend or boyfriend in the script, wasn't there? For Paddington. For Paddington. Yeah. yeah. I remember being in a, it was a writers' room at Warner's with David Quantic was in the room, and it, and it was her first. Or second draft, Crikey. and it went round the table, and everyone he said, "Give us thoughts on this." And the first thing everyone said, and it was led by Quantic, because Quantic will be rude before everyone else. And he went, "Well, the American sidekick has to go," and everyone went, "It's Poochie," and it was that feeling of, of <laughs> the first mistake everyone I think in the room had predicted was that someone at a mythical big studio, a big wig, would have said, "We need a yank point of entry. It needs to be modern." And one of the things that's amazing Gosh. about Paddington is it's set not in the place you'd set it to make it appealing for a modern to audience. anyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It, the decision's made to say, we'll set it no when. I don't immediately remember that, but there were drafts before I started writing. Uh, Hamish McCall had written a yeah. couple of drafts, and I don't immediately remember the details of all of those, because we sort of ended up starting again. There was a sort of demonic marmalade chef villain. Who yes, was, I remember. Uh, oh, yeah. Called Prunella? There was a boat chase. There was a, what's amazing is that first draft contains chase. almost Gosh. no elements that made it through to the final thing. No. It changed so much. The boat it. chase I wanted for a long time. I remember thinking that could be quite good. And then it was really financial. But the Natural History Museum was a much more... It was partly budgetary. And you sort of go, well, I, I wanted to sort of show that I could not just make a small thing. And, and also I was aware, because it is a potentially very small property Paddington, yeah. you know, and you're spending fifty million dollars, and it needs to feel like a movie. Was that all it cost? Fifty million? I don't think it even cost that the first wow. one. I think it was. Uh, it depends whether you're net or gross with the <laughs> well, tax. Too creative, a creative uh, Yeah, <laughs> let's never make a penny. Well, there's the wonderful tax rebates. Which I feel like you're going to terrific. This is what we brought you in for. This <laughs> yes, hot tax. Chat. I'm just going to pull down a chart here. And, uh, um, there's a. Uh, does mime work well? On, on I, I just extended an imaginary stick. Yes, but but no. So it wasn't very much, but that was the sort of thing. And I think actually that might have been one of the things we were working on, or certainly at one point in our roundtables where we went, we've got this and it sort of feels big and sort of scale and it's got Hollywood. And there's also the version where you go, you should be going into the villain's lair. And it was kind of, it's one of those things where you know the right thing to do, but all your good material is the wrong thing. And and I think Mm. it was a script because we did keep trying to make it better and trying to really make the platonic ideal of the script that we kind of managed to avoid a lot of those things where you go, yeah, but I just kind of like this scene. Yeah. And we go, no, find some jokes from the Natural History Museum. That cannot be impossible. You know, it's yes. a good playground for a, yeah. a bear rescue and probably better than a boat chase, which might yeah. just feel like James Bond. Well, there was a, a nice nod. I remember talking on those first few roundtables about what the bar was for Paddington. And Natural History Museum, I thought, was a really nice nod to one of our dinosaurs is missing. And the way it yes. sort of said to people, look, you remember these films, Bank Holiday, yes. get, it's not for kids. It's not one you put on in the back of the car to keep the kids quiet. This is a one all the family gather around. There's a whiff of Mary Poppins about it. It's set in that world. I remember just saying, the bar, even though you're, you remember these films very fondly, is when you sit down with your kids to watch one of our dinosaurs is missing, whoa, it takes a long time for anything to happen. And they were never as charming or great as you remembered. And the challenge was, can you make one of these that's as good as you remember yes. those films being? Well, it's the first two hours of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Oh, my God. It's, it's two could... films, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> two and then films, one inside the other. You get to the intermission, which, of course, it has, <laughs> yes. which no children's film should have. No. Don't give the children a chance to walk out. <laughs> and, um, uh, yeah, and I don't think the car's even taken off. I think they've sort of... I don't know what's happened. But they have had the breakfast machine, which breakfast was your machine. great theory. Yeah, yeah there's have always you talked a about that? Machine. When my daughter was about five, I think, I, we sat down and I thought, oh, I'm going to show her one of our dinosaurs is missing. 
and we got 42 minutes into it I think it was and she said Daddy I don't understand this film and I said to her nor do I I had a system in place where I was watching films with my son when he was younger which was all films would start with a rating of 10 out of 10 in my head Right. and every time I had to turn around to him and explain what was going on they lost a point point. Right. and that's how I rated films because I went God, if you're making a big film that children are supposed to watch, make it clear, make it so that they can understand it, not just the adults can understand it. But the number of kids' films where, where you can't explain what the MacGuffin is and why these characters are doing it. And it's because it's really difficult yes. to make a film that's got clarity. Yes, and makes sense. And also where the <laughs> plot doesn't drown everything and, yeah. and yeah. you know... I think Paddington's got a remarkable amount of space. That was never a problem with Paddington. (laughs) (laughs) The the plot can be summed up in about 14 seconds. That simplicity is really hard to pull off. Because a really, really simple plot bores people. It needs a little bit of bite. Yeah, and it's funny because it's sort of, you hear sort of things or read things afterwards where people sort of go, well, the plot's paper thing. And and you sort of go, not that that's wrong. It's not sort of, Mm. you know, a, a hugely complicated conspiracy thriller. But equally, we worked incredibly hard on the plotting. And I'd say 80% of the conversations we ever had at round tables and in the whole thing was structure and character arc and making sure that you've got your befores and afters for your characters and simple changes that are clear and easily readable images and follow it i remember the the biggest thing again one of the biggest things i learned working on paddington one was coming in and being asked to do what we get asked to a lot can you gag this up it's not getting laughs from people yes and then having a long discussion with you saying actually this, this has got the right number of gags in it we need to clear away all the chaff and the dead wood and the weeds. Yes. So those jokes suddenly pop. And there was the lovely scene with Paddington roaring at Mr. Brown and squirting ketchup everywhere. Yes. And someone said, we need more gags. And I looked at it and went, no, there's there's eight terrific gags in this. What the problem is, is we can't clear the stuff away. And right. Watching the final edit of that and going, this is so clean and clear. Yes. And joke to joke. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the best scenes. And yeah. it's actually one we sort of didn't want. That is actually a, a cuts against everything I've been saying, because it's one of those things where you didn't really need the scene. You sort of meet on the platform and the instinct was to go get on with it because it's, it's sort of got a prologue and it's sort of quite a long first act, theoretically, you know, until he sort of goes off to find the explorer mm. and, and it's all sort of it, there's a few undulations and, and, and that was something Michael Bond went he's got to go to the tea room and that, that was a sort of follow your characters moment I think where he just went well I think they'd get him a cup of tea and you sort of go yeah I, sp- I suppose I suppose they would what's your name hmm? do bears even have names mm, of course we do my name is <coughs> beg your pardon <coughs> right you try it look at the throat <clears throat> Mr. Brown, that is extremely rude. And then it became actually a really linchpin scene, and you could see what Mr. Brown's opinion was of him, and it was all fun, and he got his name. I remember the, uh, we were interrogating that quite late. I mean, it's already been shot, we're on reshoots, and we're interrogating it and going, Paddington's got a bare name. Yeah, okay. So why are Aunt Lucy called Aunt Lucy, and why is Uncle Pastuzo called Uncle Pastuzo? And we put our heads in our hands and went, how have they not got bare names? And then had to retrofit the thing about the, yes. this in the intro with the Explorer naming them after an exotic wrestling yes. metaphor, which gets a big laugh, but was done because there was a bit in the tea room scene where you asked about bears' names. Yes. Like, almost like you want to go, don't don't ask. No. Because it's magic in the And books. you never quite know whether you're going to ask that or not because sometimes <laughs> you have half-baked theories of things yeah, and you yeah. go, oh, well, we didn't have room for that. And didn't then have you to go. explain it. But, but it's a great early joke in the in the. Well, we had the, the same script in two as well where there wasn't a, a squishy cake marmalade scene early enough in, in the thing to keep the kids interested. And the, 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 the fighting with ketchup and getting cream all over you works perfectly at the point where kids are starting to drift off. Yes. You get a bit of slapstick. Well, then you want to see the sort of the, 
the currency of the movie is that lovely yeah. expression that Great. Joe Cornish taught me, where he just sort of, and he did some script editing very early on, and he sort of said some things, but with the authority of being Joe Cornish and the yeah. audience, and so you sort of go, well, I, I listened to Joe Cornish, he's, and uh, he went. Uh, uh, if he if he's not at the station by page ten, I think you've got a problem. And, which that really stayed with me because it was always about page twelve, and I was always sort of, you know, <laughs> having restless nights. And at that stage, a page makes a big difference. You yeah, know, yeah, your first yeah. ten minutes. And then the other thing he always said was, "What's the currency of the movie?" Because if it's uh, Indiana Jones, you're going to go, "Well, I want a fight or a stunt or a bit of action at yeah. least every ten minutes." And I think that's something he'd learned from Spielberg. So the currency of Paddington is cake in hair. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Slapstick and, and some yeah. some mess and some fu- well some funnies really. And yeah, that was definitely a thing in the second one. The barbershop scene kept dropping out and going back in. Uh, again, it was and getting shorter and getting longer. Yeah, getting it, it was a nightmare, and it was one of those things. I suppose what we hoped when we first talked about it was that it would become. We had a good scene in the first film of the the bath, and that felt yeah. like a really lovely, pleasing escalation. And although it was very difficult. to to sort of come up with all the details it always felt like even though it was sort of slightly stopped the plot because Mr Brown already didn't like Paddington it was just <laughs> he then really didn't like him it sort of raised the bar a little bit but it didn't do a huge amount but it did make you go the currency of this movie is bear in London you know and you sort of go well that, that, that's the central joke and you yeah. kind of go, want to make sure every 10 minutes you go bear out of water bear in water exactly <laughs> and so we'll see him on the underground or we'll see him in the in the bathroom or we'll see him in a tea room in all these places he's never been and the barbers were sort of trying to earn those that sort of laugh early on. And we did have the judge call back, mm. uh, but it was also just very hard to get funny. And that was one of those things where you go, sort of sort of the joke ended up being him holding the razor and zapping around the room. And, yeah. and you kind of go, well, I really hope that looks funny. I mean, when you see sort of Charlie Chaplin do, do that in the idle class, the cocktail shaker. And so you go, well, that's really funny the way he sort of jazzes around. I'm sure we can do that. But it all comes down to the kind of algorithm used to make the fur and his muscles <laughs> shake. And he just looked... Again, really creepy and disturbing and weird until about a day before the final, final thing. And Glenn, our visual effects supervisor, finally cracked it. Wow. And they sort of applied it across all the shots and they had the render farm going in four consonants overnight (laughs) to try and get it out. It was really up to the wire, wasn't it? I think you told me that the first screening of it, it was delivered 20 minutes before the first screening or something, wasn't it? Quite possibly. It was extremely late in the day that sounds like i might have exaggerated for, for comic effect well or, or dramatic oh my god it's, it's something that people probably don't know one of the vital bits of processing in making a big cg family movie like this is that the last thing you add is the first thing people are charmed by which is the bear's face and the, the slapstick which yes. is again the currency of the movie is is inserted at the last minute yes and those screenings in front of kids where Paddington is a porcelain doll Yes. It's one of the weirdest processes. He was processes. made of earwax, didn't he? Yes, yeah, very uh... odd sort of grey blob. But <laughs> but weirdly, I don't think it massively affects the laugh hit rate. Obviously, it flows nicer. And, and I think if you've, if you've been involved in making it, you can feel the pride of it. You know, the sound mix is good. And so it, yeah. you don't have all the clunks and the gear shifts. Uh, that in the first film there's a scene where he sort of gets tied up with sellotape and that was another <laughs> bit where you kind of go well, that was really hard to figure out and sellotape on fur was very tricky and so and we always kept going I'm sure this will get funny but kind of like the barbershop it wasn't quite getting funny I'm not sure it ever did get that funny but there was a screening where we didn't have anything in there like literally 
just an empty <laughs> shot of a sofa and you could hear sellotape <laughs> and it got great laughs and I was going well if there's literally nothing there but you kind of go by that stage the audience are just using their imagination and Paddington sounds like he will be funny yeah. getting covered in sellotape and in the real film you go yeah it's alright <laughs> but that fragility I remember the, the, the shift in changing the, the voice actor for Paddington yes. which was a real key to to getting a dynamic that I I think in the room when we heard the first read of it, it didn't occur to me that he needed to sound young. Yes, and sweet. Because yes. the, the original voicing, which was Colin Firth, Colin Firth, yes. And it was Colin Firth who sounded a bit too much like Hugh Bonneville. And it was like, it was. I remember describing it as like if at the beginning of Mary Poppins, another bank manager had come out of the sky to change, <laughs> to change yes. the family. Went, oh, there's another Mr. Banks. Yes, <laughs> and, and Colin would have been terrific casting as yeah. a kind of uptight, you know, because <laughs> that's his clown, as it were. Yeah, you know, totally. you sort of go, why it was not as difficult as it should have been is that you go, he was very aware that it wasn't working yeah. and it was sort of not that we twisted his arm because you can only twist <laughs> academy award-winning arms so far <laughs> but uh but i was sort of going i'm sure it'll work because you sort of go well who is Paddington? well he's sort of englisher than the english in a way and yes. he's kind of very polite and and it sounds like colin Firth. although he's terrific casting he's a good name we've seen him be funny in loads of stuff you sort of feel you're get there yeah. and then he was sort of felt it, he wasn't going to get there and then there was a, a moment where I sort of said this and was very wonderfully backed by all the kind of people who you would expect to go you should keep the Oscar winner in yeah. it he's going to do interviews he'll go on Letterman he'll sell a gazillion tickets and then he went well if you don't think he's right get someone else Wow! and it was an extraordinary moment of realising that you have more control and authorship over a film than you sort of imagine hmm. and do, do you suspect that those people had also really seen Bunny in the Bull and really liked it I suspect they had not oh right yes. so basically they're not in the back of the coach and horses with us guys then they're not and they, they still are, respect you they, it's amazing I, th that's why they hadn't <laughs> been allowed to see I pulped all those DVDs <laughs> just to kind King of King of uh, Landfill yes yes it's one of those films where you sort of you could sort of gauge who you're talking to and you know some people will like it if they go oh I love the boosh or something yeah. and you go well you might be the sort who likes it but if it's kind of uh, hi my name's uh, Jack and it's a pleasure to meet you you go you go, tell me about you and you go I did a small low budget film <laughs> so I tried to use all these words which go do not watch do not watch do not watch independently minded uh, yeah you wouldn't have heard of it avant-garde uh, <laughs> uh, but there is, there's a straight line through which I think when when you first said you were doing Paddington and I, I, you see the boosh and you see the, the, the things that are done in Bunny and the Bull with, with cardboard cutouts and things that have a straight line through to A, to sort of a very British charm that's in Paddington, but also those Ivor Wood animations. Yes. That are directly referenced in, in, in Bunny and the Bull. Yes. The Ivor Wood 1970s, is it? Mid-70s yes. BBC series. Um, uh, yeah, with Michael Halden voicing it. There's a, there's a connection there that you go, well, to a British person, you're the obvious choice. Yes, <laughs> well, quite right too. Uh, I genuinely loved them. And then as I came back to it as a grown-up, realised how incredibly beautiful it was. And you sort of go, oh, I, I was right, you know. It One day, Paddington parked his shopping basket on wheels outside the baker's while he bought his morning supply of buns. It really is, isn't it? For anyone yeah. who's not seen it, it's, it's a, a three-dimensional bear dropped into two-dimensional watercolour cartoon paper human beings and backgrounds. Yes. Which is remarkable and weirdly is what you're kind of doing 
in Paddington anyway, which you've got two different media for your lead character and and the backdrop. Yes, and 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 that you the audience goes with the bear. I liked the idea of starting with Paddington and it being Paddington's story and seeing Peru and seeing that. Yeah. And part of me always just wanted to drive a helicopter over the Amazon. Of course, <laughs> you get there on the day and you got a tripod and you go, "Where's my helicopter? This was supposed to be the dream." But uh, a tripod from the the program tripod. <laughs> yes, exactly. Tall. It was actually a very good shooting platform. <laughs> and you um, actually shot in Peru then? Didn't well, you? we actually shot in Costa Rica, right. which is like Peru but less distance to travel and God, cheaper. God, I assumed that was all CG. Oh no, we. We went to that. We had the worst. Have I? How have I not told you this? Oh, this is the worst. So this is the. We did a pre-shoot, which is sort of not part of the main body of the shoot, and, and a sort of couple of months earlier, maybe. I think we went in January for the weather, right. which, despite having gone, was abysmal. And we sort of wrecked it a few times, and sort of you kind of walked through the jungles a lot, and there were sort of various like parks, I suppose, like zipline type parks. Yeah, so yeah. so there are places where you can get to the jungle and you can get deep into it with comparative ease rather than hacking your way through, you know, Werner Herzog style. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and I was, it's your first thing on a big film with a big crew and all these things. And you sort of, we'd pre-visit it when you sort of tried to plan all the shots <laughs> and there were sort of loads of, lots of complicated technology and, and, and it was just, it was all going to be fine. And then we got there and essentially none of the kit worked at all. Oh, no. So you have a dolly, the moving trolley that you put a camera on, and it came without track, which in the drung- jungle means it cannot move left <laughs> or right, and also would only go down. It couldn't go up. So you <laughs> so literally... Uh, and, and so you go, OK, well, I sort of planned the camera to move a little bit through the jungle, but the camera will only move down. <laughs> And the generator kept failing. So on this first night, we were sort of there for about three hours. And in the jungle, when the lights go out, you cannot see. Yes. So oh, I remember just sitting no like on the wet floor, kind of by a tree, slowly losing my mind. <laughs> and uh, David Heyman, the producer who's sort of done Harry Potter and was sort of so... He, he's an incredibly nice down-to-earth guy. But to me, at the time especially, seemed incredibly grand and from a different world of making movies that people actually saw and, you know, were interested in and looked professional in that way. And I remember this huge, like, pile of brambles about six foot wide. And we were just desperately trying to get this shot. And, like, we couldn't get it because it was in the way. And he just threw his entire body into this bramble patch to try and clear the camera. And I was going, this cannot be how it is on, on Harry Potter. And then on our last day, we filmed the scene where, after the earthquake, you know, where Paddington yes. walks out and Uncle uh, Pastuzo's died. And, and we sort of finally filmed this. And it was one thing where I went, this is handheld. There's no technology to go wrong. go wrong. I can do this. You know, there's no characters to shoot I know what the shots are we can bang through it and we did it all just as the light was fading and um, the guy who was in charge of the you don't have tape or film anymore you have dip, the dip guy who's that's the, yeah. the, the chips of all the stuff and um, just I went well everyone's been an incredibly tough week but I uh, can at least say that is a can I have a quick word uh, what and he went um, I had the right protect on the chip and the whole day's shoot was lost. And it was six, literally the six worst days of film you could ever, ever imagine. And, and we went back and because there was a big pause, I was on the plane going, I am never going to be, you know, they're going to fire me. They're going to get somebody who can make films. And, and they were very kind and gave me another go. Fuck, so how did you get around that? Did you have to just repeat a day's shoot? We did. Uh, so that that we had to repeat in the morning, so that before everyone left, because people were sort of getting on planes at like 10 o'clock and we got up at 6 and then did it in triple quick time. Wow. Various other bits we did build in the studio and our green screen. Uh, and, and it was a series of, 
bodges and things, and and it really is not a well filmed sequence. It's, <laughs> it's it was, okay because it's the beginning of the film. Yeah, it's fine. It's, no one's really, no one's really. It's only to be the epic there. scale, and so <laughs> and Frame Store saved us a lot. I yes. mean, they really did some heroic stuff to make They're it look like they, they are brilliant. Store. Good grief! Yes. Uh, the, the thing you always find with that is you you keep saying in your brain when you're working, oh, we can do it in CGI, and then yes. the people at Frame Store explain that it's really hard to do things in CGI and really expensive yeah. and really difficult. And people think that computers solve problems. Yes. But they're as hard as anything else to make work. Yes. I mean, it's basically going, well, can you do a photorealistic drawing that moves? Yeah. And you go, well, yeah, yes, but it'll take a long time. And unfortunately, by that stage, we, they, we were able to save a bit of money and, and spend yeah. it in, in that department. I remember doing on, on two where we, we wanted to do some callback gags. Just to, it was just a, a last gag part. And there was a gag where Jamie Dimitriou's character in the prison is playing with a cake fork or there's a little bit of sort of, uh, yes, sort of delicate yes. manners when, yes. when the prison's been gentrified yes. playing with a cake fork and we said oh what would be, might be quite funny if, if Aunt Lucy's got a cake fork at the beginning where they're eating the first scenes and it'll be a little callback that, that Paddington's brought the manners yes. of Aunt Lucy into the prison and you turned to us with your head in your hands and went we can't afford a fork <laughs> and we said what? He said getting Frame Store to build a fork that Paddington or Aunt Lucy can hold at the beginning is too expensive and I remember the whole room going what what have we got? And you went, we've got toothbrushes from, from film one. And I think that's when we put the toothbrush callback in that Paddington's cleaning his ears with toothbrushes. Yes. Everyone on the table went, give us a list of what's in the cutlery drawer in Paddington and we'll use it again for extra gags. I know, it's crazy. But every object he touches is about another $10,000. Yeah, I remember you saying that. Be... I remember you saying a cake fork will cost us 10000 bucks. Yeah. We can't we do know. it. We said it's either a cake fork or a bit of plot. Yeah. <laughs> what do you want? I know. I mean, it's a very strange... Uh, yes, because she's not... I'm trying to think what she's doing. She's using what she is using on the rope bridge. Because when you said that, I'd forgotten that. And I was just thinking, that sounds like a good idea. Why wasn't she having cake? Uh, that's a much better idea. And we do have bits of cake, yeah. uh, but we probably didn't have a cake fork. But in the end, she's pouring a cup of tea, which that's is the same tea set that Paddington interacts with in the tea room in yes, Paddington exactly. 1, <clears throat> coloured in differently. It was just a way... I think it was a sudden idea in the room to sort of say, should we have the nice prison cake... Yes. eating echoed in how Aunt Lucy lives yeah. at the beginning it's, it's something no one would notice but it felt like a nice bloody writer's rooms I mean they have no idea what you face <laughs> <laughs> just uh, well oh, can it... the house explode no it can't explode <laughs> Yeah, this close again, to being fired. <laughs> Can he be a panda? Everyone likes pandas. Kung Fu Paddington. And is it is it true that, I seem to remember you telling me this, that Hugh Grant's song and dance sequence was his first day on the film? Yes, that is wow. true. Wow. <laughs> because, again, it was one of those ridiculous sort of things where you go, and we'd thrown that in very last minute as a kind of, it was just going to be a credits joke, because I think what we didn't, we, we got ourselves in a real mess thinking about, well, the point of this film is, there's good in everyone and, and you can find it and you go and find yeah. all these prisoners and to yeah. go there's no good in your villain seemed very tiresome we wanted a villain who felt part of the world because in the first one she was very much in the natural history thing and yeah. then coming into that thing which was great and a perfectly good shape for a, for a villain I think and she's terrific but we thought it would be more fun or just to give us different jokes if Paddington could butt up against them through the first act so yeah. that it wasn't just a sort of final confrontation yeah uh, and so so we thought well we want to redeem him because he's not all bad he's just an actor you know mm. and it's kind of it's he's sort of a character who gets in over his head rather than going from day one I want to kill him it yeah. was more well I just want the book you know he just wanted money and wanted to put on his one man show so we thought we'd do that it's an evening of monologue and song featuring some of my better known characters would you like a little preview um picture this scene darkness then suddenly spotlight me Bing! 
Listen to the rain on the roof. Go pit, pity, pat, pit, pity, pat, sit. Oh, Mary, you look sad. Then we thought we'd make it a big song and dance number. Uh, and then uh, we planned the prison set to do all that stuff. And so we were taking the prison set down to build other things. And he had to come in and do this thing. And again, that's one of those things where you're very nervous. And you don't quite know what you're going to get because I think it's not a... A secret to say, industry secret to say, not all actors are entirely game and open <laughs> and generous. Uh, and some of them are a little bit prissy and up themselves and difficult. And you just don't know, do you? And and Hugo Hugh Grant, he's sort of, he's very famous and he's been a huge star. And here he is doing a kind of maybe a smaller film or a sort of smaller role in a film than yeah. he may have done before. There's all sorts of ways in which an actor's ego could be sort of slightly... Uh, you know, not quite where he wants to be. It's a family thing, which he hasn't done much of before. But he was so game. And he did 15 hours straight in kind Whoa. of skin-tight trousers, four-inch platform boots <laughs> going up and down a hundred <laughs> flights of stairs. You know, that staircase is enormous to try yeah. and dance on. He's not a natural dancer. He can barely hold a tune. So. Well, he legendarily didn't enjoy doing his little dance bit in Love Actually. So, you go, the one time he's done this before on a film, he went to every interview and said, I didn't like doing Yes, that. and he didn't like doing the singing in About a Boy. Like, yeah. it's just not his comfort zone. And because it's also not his skill set. You know, yeah. it's yes. one of those things. I, I like listening to music, <laughs> but I don't want to sing and I don't want to dance because I'm not that great at them. He's obviously... He's able to get good and he's able to carry the character through. But he was just so game and absolutely just up for everything. And I just, it was one of those things where you go, I knew he was going to be an absolute treat because he just threw himself in for it, into it and went for it. Was he your first choice for Phineas Buchanan? He's who we wrote, yes, from second one. So we called him Hugh in the early drafts of the script because we we didn't have a name. But I think you were in the writer's room when we were trying to think of names and we came up with Phoenix Bar because of the Phoenix Bar. Oh, yeah, the, the, yeah. the actor's and, bar. Uh, yeah. yeah, and we kind of... Uh, we liked the idea of him being Scottish and I was thinking Bar's Iron Brew and yeah. then we sort of said Phoenix Bar and then realised that was a joke for the guys from the Coach and Horses. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe we better well, think... You, got a, you want a big international sales, do some jokes about the bar on Charing Cross Road <laughs> I mean, where actors and twirlies drink. Who says I lost, lost the common touch <laughs> but and and also i think the other thing was we didn't think mr bar which paddington would call yeah. him sounded good so we sort of went for buchanan instead and so but it, he was hugh for a long time because we just thought he would be great and we thought it'd be very funny and also he was a sort of shorthand for somebody who was maybe he'd been extremely attractive in their youth and was now sort of middle-aged and kind of you know yeah. it's we sort of send him up the whole time we but we did write this letter going dear mr grant we got a character who's a vein washed up over the hill old ham and we thought of you so, but <laughs> fortunately he realized that was a jest imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time that's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Uh, well, I think we should uh, we should then move naturally from that to your choice that you've brought to us, which is a, a study of vain and pompous hams. Yes, it's a great film, and it's not one I knew. Uh, so this is uh, the film I have chosen is uh, To Be or Not to Be, directed by Ernst Lubitsch and made in 1942. To Be or Not to Be is truly an outstanding motion picture, an exciting romantic comedy keyed to an ever-mounting tempo of suspense. To Be or Not to Be brings you the screen's beloved star, Carol Lombard, in the kind of role that won her the applause of millions. And that mirthmaker of the movies, that Casanova of the radio, your favorite comedian, Jack Benny, in something entirely new, something surprisingly different, and it's hilarious all the way. It's not a film I knew, but Sam Ellis, who is a regular stalwart of our writers' rooms, introduced me to it about 10 years ago, I suppose. And I saw it and just absolutely fell in love with it. And it was the first Lubitsch I'd seen, and I think it is his best film. And I've now seen virtually everything he's done, I think. Uh, but it's just his standout masterpiece, if you ask me, certainly along with Ninochka, which is scripted by Billy Wilder and also he's, great. 
He's not a name people know. Weirdly, you recommended this. I'd heard of this film and not seen it. I think I'd seen the Mel Brooks remake when I was a kid and a Mel Brooks fan and gone, ooh, this isn't a usual Mel Brooks film. So all I knew was that, that it existed and roughly what it was about. And Lubitsch was a name I'd heard of. And I, but he's but complete, Lubitsch, he's fallen out of public consciousness, I would like really, to say. Obviously, there will be a million this week, uh, the, the, cinephiles going, what are you talking about? Yeah. But he's not known in the same way that you might know Billy Wilder. No, totally. No. And Billy Wilder is someone who hero-worshipped him. Billy Wilder famously... I saw this on this turn up on Facebook. Uh, a writer friend had been to a museum in Berlin where they've got some exhibits about Lubitsch. And there's on the on the wall of this museum is the sign that was in Billy Wilder's office, which is in copper plate hand, and it says, "How would Lubitsch do it?" So Billy Wilder, the director of Some Like It Hot, was basically enthralled to this man. Yes, and he wrote for Lubitsch. He wrote Ninochka. So Ninochka, I think, is Wilder and Charles Brackett and Lubitsch co-written script and extremely funny. And uh, this is completely off point, but I have to say, my wife, who is a wonderful person, made me a copy of that sign. Wow. How would Lubitsch do it? It's a little box, but with interchangeable names. <laughs> so she made about 50 things. So I can go, how would Lubitsch do it? How would Steven Spielberg do it? How would uh, Agnes Varda do it? How would... Uh, you know, uh, and so uh, Kubrick do it, or you know, Brilliant. so depending Whatever on what mood, mood I'm, yeah. who, who I'm ripping off today, I can <laughs> I can stick in there, and it's great. Uh, but yeah, so he, I, this is where I feel I should know more about Lubitsch, but he was an enormous star director at the time and hugely well regarded and brought over a team of people. So he did a shop around the corner, mm-hmm. which Jim was... James Stewart, which is, often turns up in the list of rom-coms that are worth watching. Yes. Which there are too few. Uh, and it's essentially uh, You've Got Mail is yeah. is, is the, yes, the sort, of, remake, yeah. sort of remake, you know, a sort of a homage. And Ninochka, which is a great film, uh, which is Greta Garbo as a kind of spy. And uh, that's very funny. And uh, Heaven Can Wait, I think, is him. Mm-hmm. And uh, he made a bunch of Maurice Chevalier musicals, which are very funny. And yet, because Maurice Chevalier is so charming, you sort of get away with them. But they are also some of the least woke films you will ever see. (laughs) Uh, Maurice Chevalier basically thinks a woman should cook and clean and sleep with Maurice Chevalier. (laughs) And uh, if she's a woman's bad, yes. And if they're not going to, he's going to sulk. So that's the plot. (laughs) Most of those musicals. But somehow he is so charming and funny. You kind of go, well, you know, Maurice. You know, he's shagging around. The word you keep using here, which I think is interesting, is, is funny. And when you talk about great directors one of the reasons probably Lubitsch has been forgotten is when you go who are the great funny directors and you go well of course there's Billy Wilder and I've run out yes but this film uh, To Be or Not To Be turns up in the AFI Top 50 a lot it is regarded as one of the great Hollywood comedies and a lot of the great Hollywood films the great Hollywood directors are not meant to be funny you don't love them because you get underrated it doesn't win Best Picture and things no and this is unarguably a great film and a great comedy its main purpose is to make you laugh and, and it does both. And it was it was hugely controversial at the time. Again, this is going to be my a, a little ignorance, but I, Lubitsch wrote a rebuttal uh, to kind of the, the terrible reviews it had, which I've not read the terrible reviews, but basically people saying, uh, we're at war, you know, this is, this is wartime with Germany and uh, you are making jokes about the invasion of Poland. And the, I mean, this is a film with a concentration camp joke. Uh, uh, yeah. a, a concentration camp runner. Yes. It's not and, only got... The first concentration camp joke is amazing. Yes. And it's Carol Lombard who's dressed up for a concentration camp in a vavavoom dress. Yes, sort of ball gown. You're meant to go, what? This is a serious play, a realistic drama. Good morning, Devash. Good morning. How do you like my dress? Very good, very good. It is a document of Nazi Germany. 
Is that what you're going to wear in the concentration camp? Well, don't you think it's pretty? That's just it. Well, why not? I think it's a tremendous contrast. Think of me being flogged in the darkness. I scream, suddenly the lights go on and the audience discovers me on the floor in this gorgeous dress. That's a terrific laugh. That's right, Greenberg. You keep out of this. I mean, that's the first gag, and then there's a runner about, about calling yes. the yes. concentration camp Earhart. Yes, there's a joke where the, um, the German commandant goes, uh, uh, we do the concentrating, they do the camping. <laughs> and you just go... It's... Good luck with that one. So it was very controversial, but also hugely successful. It's very funny. And I think great defence of the power of humour and yes. the importance of laughter and art, that there are different ways of, of handling these things. And I think what the film does, which to me is so great, uh, is that it starts, it feels like it's going to be a backstage comedy and you yep. watch your first act and you kind of go, it's a romance, it's funny, yep. it's a bit, bit edgy because it's got some sort of Hitler jokes in it. But and essentially... sex jokes, he means really good at, get, at getting around the production code. There's yeah. Yes. Double entendres that yes. are amazing. You're certainly aware yes. of what's going on. Yeah. I hope you forgive me if I acted a little clumsy, but this is the first time I ever met an actress. Lieutenant, this is the first time I've ever met a man who could drop three tons of dynamite in two minutes. Bye. Bye. But it's basically about actors' ego and pomposity, and then it completely changes genre for about 20 minutes. The jokes more or less drop out when we kind of go to Britain and we sort of see this young airman who's sort of previously just been a kind of romantic love interest and and there's a lot of spying which is genuinely thrilling yeah and then gloriously for the second half you've got the, the two, two worlds them, colliding it's and you get, amazing it's just genius the moment the nazis march into to warsaw the jokes stop and you don't miss them because it's really exciting and it's really dramatic and the, part of you goes well this is the correct response to this because it the world stopped being funny. These guys are actors, they just want to entertain, and you've been entertained by their antics and their vanity and their pomposity, and it's got great jokes about how actors are hams. There's that lovely yes. joke with the, the, the Jewish bit part actor says... Yes. Mr. Ravitch, what you are, I wouldn't eat. How dare you call me a ham? Proper gags, and it's really fast and really funny, and it feels a bit like Frasier. It's got this sort of fizzy wit to it. Yes. And then people march into Warsaw, and all the jokes stop. Yeah. And you go, yeah, that's the correct response. There are, there are shocked faces, yes. lovely reaction shocks of, of all the people of Poland going, oh, it's stopped being But funny. there's also Jack Benny's great reaction that he's still mostly annoyed that someone walked out during his soliloquy. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> so everyone's kind of going, this is terrible. He goes, I know, it's an outrage. I mean, it's just disgusting. It's disgraceful. It's uh, a terrific screenplay, isn't it, by Edwin Justice Meyer. The dialogue is just to die for. It's, it's extraordinary. Fantastic. Yes. First you walk out of my soliloquy, then you walk into my slippers. Lines like that, and <laughs> you go, wow. Yes. And Where did you get that? such a good running joke that he every time that, that Jack Benny's this sort of very vain actor, as, as you know, and uh, and he's very pompous and and it's sort of probably a subconscious model for Phoenix Buchanan, somebody who just yeah, wants to be yeah. in the limelight and who everyone thinks is terrible and is always asking that great uh, um, Hungarian actor Joseph Tura. No one's ever heard, heard of him. him. Yes, <laughs> and of course no one has, and then one person finally has. Them. Everyone's heard of his wife, and no yes, one's heard yes. of him. <laughs> yes, and his wife is presumably constantly sleeping around. Is the implication? Yeah, uh, or that, that joke really the first character joke you get between the two of them, which is don't be a prima donna. Whenever there's a chance to take the spotlight away from me, it's becoming ridiculous the way you grab attention. Whenever I start to tell a story, you finish it. If I go on a diet, you lose the weight. If I have a cold, you cough. And if we should ever have a baby, I'm not so sure I'd be the mother. I'm satisfied to be the father. You've set up these people are, are like obviously bickering they're, they're equals. Uh, yes. But also that she's she's a bit of a tart. Yes. God, I mean, one of the things that really touched me Apart from going, this is a generous film, it's going to make me laugh. The speed of the jokes. Joke, 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 I'm going to laugh. Was also that it loved all its characters. It set up an unfaithful wife. 
Yes. And I didn't feel at any point I didn't like her. No, she's I know great. why she's doing it. Yeah. She's beautifully played. Carol Lombard is amazing. I know in her last film she died in a plane crash. Yeah, she because was, I was gathering money for war bonds. Oh, a year so later, true. 33. And she's so funny. I mean, it's yeah. one of the great comic performances. She's a recasting. They cast originally someone else opposite Jack Benny. They? they had no chemistry. And so Lubitsch said, get rid of her and got Carol Lombard in. And Carol Lombard agreed to do it. A, because she was desperate to work with Lubitsch. But also because she wanted to make a film for whichever studio this was. She wanted Paramount, to make a film at every single major studio. Wow. This was her last one for the collection and then she died. Wow. She collected I, the lot. She's so beautiful and so good. And so funny and she's so she's so great. And there's this line, I just want to say this thing which I, before I forget, which really to me sums it up because there's this great um, actor who Lubitsch often worked with, uh, Felix Bressart, who's also in Shop Around the oh, Corner. He's and great. He's Jewish he plays, yes, Green, Greenbaum, I think yeah. he's called, uh, or Greenberg. And he's, um, yeah, exactly. He's a spear carrier who wants to give this Shylock speech. And talking of rule of three, you go, it's absolutely, we see, first of all, it's ridiculous. And then it sort of slowly becomes true. But there's this great line when the direct, the di- so, so you meet them and they're trying to, they're rehearsing a play about Hitler. And the director wants it to be very serious because you shouldn't make jokes about it. But the actors are all vain actors who want, laughs and they want to look sexy and they want to kind of do that stuff and there's this great line he goes uh he goes do you want my opinion no then i'll give you my reaction a laugh is nothing to be sneezed at and you go oh that's the film in a nutshell yep. i think he says it twice or three times oh does he it comes back and it was the line that i wrote down i went that is what this film's about this film is about if there's a serious threat if there's a taboo if there's something we're not meant to be talking about the threat of nazi germany or whatever you must laugh at it. Yes. And the thing that comes across in this, the re- I mean, I was watching it and enjoying it and then towards the end thinking, oh, I should have a deeper reaction. I should try and understand what's going on. But the, the clever thing is, it's about vain actors who pretend to be, who impersonate Nazis because they've got a bunch of costumes. So one of them dresses up as Hitler, one of them dresses up as, they dress up as the Gestapo. They're vain actors. And the film laughs at those Nazis by saying that they're also vain actors. Yes. The actors can pass as Nazis because the Nazis are also pompous, pretending. Earhart, the concentration camp commander, is... Yes, yeah, more a, ridiculous than the most grotesque caricature. And that, you ask that Hitler, he said, who is Hitler? He's just a man with a little moustache. And you go, yeah. Yes. A great that's actually, it, that's a really inflammatory exchange, that one. I wonder, in, when this came out in 1942, fuck knows what an audience thought of it, but the director is complaining that the guy playing Hitler doesn't look enough like Hitler. And he says, to me, he's just a little man with a moustache. And someone says, so was Hitler. Yes. And it actually was. They put Hitler in the past tense for that line as well. And you go, wow, this is, this is extraordinary. That, at the when time, that must this, have played really dangerous. They're wow. making this when America's not even in the war. They're making it in 41, because it goes out in 42. Yeah. Or they're making it over the top of the debate about whether America yes. should be in the war. Like Casablanca. Or, and sort of, yeah. you, you probably think, OK, well, it might be quite a good idea if you want America to get into the war to say that Nazis are a serious threat. Yes. He's going, they're just pompous, vain hands. Yes. They're, they're just acting tough. And the concept of the Heil Hitler catchphrase, which becomes a catchphrase, everyone, the moment anything gets difficult or awkward, just goes, Heil Hitler, yes. which is, is, is allo allo funny. It's yes. relentlessly funny yes. that Heil Hitler answers all questions. Because well, there's a running joke that he's going to be remembered as a piece of cheese that people <laughs> tell and then, then worry they're going to get into trouble. For telling that joke. Yeah. And it it's also got Heil myself. Heil myself. It's a great a opening line. Mel Brooks. <laughs> you, you, you can go. see Mel Brooks watching this and going, I might do the producers or Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's funny having people dressed as Hitler. Well, I wanted to laugh. You know, just, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Heil myself. Der Führer! Heil Hitler! Heil Hitler! Heil myself. Technically, that great thing where you're not sure whether you're watching real Nazis at that point. Yes, and the it's guy brilliant. Who, guy comes in who's dressed as Hitler, and you're watching the film going, "Is that is that Hitler? Is it supposed to be Hitler?" And he comes, he he, he comes, he looks very serious, and then goes, "Heil myself!" Yes. And then he pull out to reveal they're just on stage. Yes. and it's it's all plays within plays. I mean, it's about them putting on Hamlet 
and they borrow lots of Shakespearean tropes. They do the truth that's in a play. They do yes. root mechanicals having the truth. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern being offstage commenting on the lead actors. They do all these Shakespearean jokes, mistaken identity from like Twelfth Night. Yes. There's loads of Shakespearean gags in it. And actually, it, the plot is so intricate. I thought, wow, you've written a Shakespeare complicated plot. Yes, and get through it in 95 minutes or yeah. something. Yeah, it goes I mean, it's, a lick. It's, oh. The editing is extraordinary. Watching it again, that you remember it being very funny, and you go, "It is so tight that as the picture is fading out, the line you can just hear the end of the line, and there's a laugh on that line." So you start the next scene, and then the drama is cut properly for scares and peril, and they never yeah. sort of pet, they never chose a lane, which is no. brilliant, you know. Mm. And and you just sort of go, "It's this extraordinary balancing act that you feel only somebody who was absolutely at the top of their craft could get away with, because it doesn't let up in tension, it doesn't let up in laughs. It's just great. A laugh is nothing to be sneezed at, Mr. Greenberg. I hired you as an actor and not as a writer. Understand? I felt something watching it. We got to the fir- end of what I suppose is sort of the first act, where you leave Poland and you go to the RAF base where the, the young flyboy, played by Robert Stack, who's the p- a pilot in an airplane. He comes back, he's in the two of the funniest I films I've ever made, playing name. pilots. He's the guy with the two sets of sunglasses. Wow. This is a young version of him when he was a dashing lead. So it's great. I mean, imagine being Robert Stack. You're in this and airplane playing pilots in the funniest films ever. But they go back at the end of Act One. I was sort of giddy from how much had happened. I think I'd forgotten how fast screwball comedy goes. Mm. And it feels amazingly flattering to be delivered plot and gags and character at this pace. Yes. I was breathless. Yes, and they don't need redeeming any of the characters. Like, what's so great is they go on this great journey, and it's one of those things. I think it's probably something he picked up doing Maurice Chevalier musicals, where you kind of go, you don't want Maurice Chevalier to reform and settle down. You want him to have an eye for the ladies, because that's the character. And it's almost like those things were almost more like sitcom episodes than kind of, you know, they're sort of 70-minute musicals, and they clearly knock them out in about a fortnight. And you sort of go... it's more like it's much more like episodic television. And what I think is so great about this is they all go on this great journey, and you go, the husband proves that he's brave, and he risks his wife, life to save the wife, and you know. But the, at the wife end, proves she's brave. The wife who at the beginning you could go, she's having an affair with this M, and you could go, well, like, I'm going to condemn her in a minute. But she but loves the brilliant. husband. She tries to save him. Like they all save each other, and anyone the, else the, would go. The little airman who upsets the husband. He's having an affair with the lead's uh, wife, so obviously we'll condemn him. Yes. Half an hour in, he's a war he's hero. He's the romantic lead oh, and, and the hero. And yeah. You don't mind. You go. I like all these characters. I even, I don't have sympathy for the Nazis, but I have, I understand their desperation. But the Colonel is a very likeable character, even though he's constantly killed everyone. And he's another regular Lubitsch. The actor is a a known, recognisable, warm face. It's kind of like sort of casting Simon Farnaby as a Nazi. You kind of go, he's not going to be, he's not going to be evil, but he is dehumanised. Everyone is human. Mm. And it's probably one of the most revolutionary things you can say. You're about to engage in a war with these people. And there's no point at which the Nazis aren't monstrous in this. They are clearly monsters, but they're flawed monsters. Mm. We could all make this mistake. It's incredibly mm. empathetic. Mm. Yes, because they, they are just the same as the, the ridiculous actors. Yeah. And you sort of go... You get the feeling that they're, they're trapped, yes. oddly, in this silly game. A- and terrified of, of this kind of monster that they've created. And yeah. they're, they're all mm. scared. They're mostly just scared of getting into trouble with Hitler, you know, <laughs> and you sort of go, well, that's... I mean, that's how they sort of justify and get those jokes out of it. <laughs> we're just laughing. <laughs> so we're, this is, we're allowed. It says in the can rubric at the top we can quote bits and giggles. Yes. 
I think a husband is entitled to an inkling. <laughs> yeah, but I was enjoying, I was enjoying that line when he just goes, "I'll decide uh, with whom my wife has dinner and who she's going to kill." <laughs> but it really—you reminds... can't have your cake and shoot it. They're on a, a plane. They're trying to get rid of some Nazis, and just the one of them who's dressed as Hitler tells the Nazis to get out of the door of the plane. <laughs> I just jumped. Yes, I heard that. Jump. <laughs> Gentlemen, the Fuhrer wants to talk to both of you himself. The lieutenant will take the control. Yes, mein Fuhrer. Jump. Hell it up. Hell it up. Two very obliging fellows. Now let's go to England. It feels like watching a really fast sitcom. It feels like this is the sense of humour that then goes into uh, Mel Brooks, Larry Gelbart, Mash, Cheers, Frasier. This is a lot of Woody Allen. I think yeah, it really yeah. reminded me of somewhere between Bullets Over Broadway and kind of. Well, like, the gag rate of Take the Money and Run. It's just yes, gag, 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 yes. gag, and you can pull out. And the fact that it's prepared to do voiceover gags and cut away, you don't know what's going to happen next in terms of it changes protagonists, it changes mood, changes key. But there's no point at which it's not trying to entertain you. No. Which is so generous. Yes. When you're told that a film is a classic movie, you tend to think, well, this is going to be hard work. It's going to be slow. Yeah, classic and- is a euphemism for slow. Like, independent is a euphemism for cheap. cheap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is a classic movie. Oh, I've got it. It's homework, isn't yes. it? Yes. Leisurely paced is always the, the real alarm. <laughs> Leisurely paced. Yes. How long is this film? Is it is an hour and a half? Uh, uh, 95, 94, yes, something yes, like that. Yes, yeah. It's it, the right length. It definitely couldn't be much tighter. And if you enjoyed this, I would say Ninochka is the next one to go for, which is incredibly funny it was a very funny awesome. spy film uh, it is uh, yes a communist spies and it's got Gresh Garbo in it and the tagline like the poster line was Garbo laughs oh god which is uh, which was apparently enough to get people into the movies wow That's- I mean, she has a lovely smile, but you oh, know, God. It's, uh... wow. What I've is... got, I've got a complaint about this film. <laughs> go on. Here we go. It's <laughs> no, boring and not no, funny. <laughs> no, no. I looked. It's leisurely based. I looked on Netflix and iTunes and all the usual places, and I don't seem to be able to pay for it. I watch an a beautiful HD copy off fucking YouTube. I did too. I, I mean, bought the DVD. My on? DVD came from Holland. Well, you can. There's a very nice Criterion collection, <sighs> but it you, should be three quid everywhere. It's it's one of those movies. Why, it should be why like, when you can spend forty nine dollars and have lovely packaging for people with more money than sex. <laughs> <laughs> just... There should be where buying this like you'd buy uh, when Harry met Sally. Yes, because it's a great, it's a good date movie. It's a good evening in movie. It's so much fun. Yes. it's so funny that the idea that. For a while, I remember Harold and Maud was unavailable in any format. And you went, oh, come on, don't rob the world of the delights of watching wow. Harold and Maud. That's, That's just a... stupid. Well, it is on YouTube, thank goodness. Yeah. Well, you can, we'll put a link up to, to the YouTube thing so you can watch the whole movie. It is, it's so nice. What's lovely about this is it plays really lightly with politics. You're taking a very serious subject and saying, by laughing at it, a laugh is not to be sneezed at. This mm. is the right response. That the worst thing you can do is take this stuff seriously. Mm. Because then you've lost your humanity. Mm. It's such a brilliant thing. And it re- reminded me, in a really good way, of the light way that Paddington wears its politics. Because the last thing you want to do is do a preachy film about this. You want to entertain people. Yes, and, and I think you can you can do a huge amount and entertain people and, and, and be extremely, I think, far more effective in, in many ways. No one wants to listen to a homily. No, or be hectored. It remi- it's the Aesop's fable, isn't it, about yeah. to get the man to get his Some coat off. You don't bluster with the wind. You warm them gently with the sun. Mm. And eventually they take their coat off through their own free will mm. that's how you get someone to change yes. and there's a lovely uh, line in this that goes through to the, the delicate way that that people 
responded very warmly to Paddington by being allowed to spot a political message in it that was not, it was a human message more than anything, but one that normally would be taken as a very, very political thing. Yes. Or well, you feel that you're out. going to get kind of exed benefits office day. <laughs> yeah. You know, Frank steps over a pool of sick and yeah. you go, okay, well, it sounds, it sounds fun. Mr. Curry, this is Paddington. He's a bear. I can see that. He must be a long way from home. I'm from darkest Peru. Uh, don't worry, Mr. Curry. He's going. Just as well. Don't want to be kept up by any of your loud jungle music. Comedy can have profound import, you know, and, and just because it's got a laugh in it doesn't mean it's not got something to say and it doesn't mean that it doesn't have resonance beyond it. And I think what's that's what's so nice about the, the main characters not really changing as well is that you sort of feel what's glorious about them is not that they heal their marriage and become this perfect kind of nuclear family, but that they're always going to be flawed, bumbling, vain, silly, yeah. mm. uh, flirty people. And that's glorious, you know, and there's something really splendid. But those people can still be splendid and they can still stand up. You don't need to be the kind of chiseled jaw, heroic uh, Superman to kind of take on the world. You can be a vain actor and have just as much impact and, and do wonderful things. Everyone does something heroic. I think Carol Lombard's scene where she's in the, in the Gestapo headquarters is so exciting mm. she's being so decent and she's being so clever and you go oh god you've given a role like this to your glamorous lead yes and she's allowed to be totally heroic yes and flawed yeah. which is great and just the sort she's of having a stupid affair she's yes. a vain actress yes she's... yes exactly and wants to look like in a nice frock i mean part of the appeal is what's so great is all these actors going undercover and they really care about the costumes and you just <laughs> such a great running joke you know oh, i haven't had this gown on oh caviar they still make that and you just go she may be undercover but she's going to enjoy it with a glass of champagne as she goes along you know, it's so brilliant and just not the sort of character that gets written very much and is a, a glorious treat Lubitsch didn't really set his films anyway they were set in Lubitsch land right mm. and even though this is geographically war so you can see it's a little studio set they've they've dressed with there's a real odd thing where they've dressed the set with signage signs of businesses all of most of which are Jewish businesses and there's something very very powerful and you see these these names and the words and you go they're Polish names and then you see them shattered yeah the names are smashed up and it's sort of saying they're taking their identity they're smashing up who they are mm. very very powerful but very heightened, not realistic. And the, there's lots of miniatures working, yes. which I imagine appeals to you. And cheap painted backdrops. It's yeah. not, and it doesn't matter. Because no. people say that comedy can't be important or serious. And people say that heightened reality is less real. And you go, no, I read more into a fairy story than yes. I do in the, the bland surface of realism. Yes, and it sort of goes back to what we were talking about with Paddington and the sellotape. The audience lean in and they fill in the gaps. And there's yeah. something really splendid about that. Yeah. Especially in a film about layers of reality and identity. Yeah. Like when it pulls back to the real world, it never feels like the real world. You have, you ever, have you ever put a, put, a, put a sock on your hand and tucked the end of the sock into the palm of your hand and made a puppet and presented it to a kid? When you do that, they can't see you. All they can see is a puppet. It's yeah. it's sensational. They just don't meet your eyes at all. They're looking at this because they're talking to a puppet. Wow. You lean in. There's a willing willing suspension of disbelief is a phrase used really badly. You see, the internet is full of people who keep criticising films because they're not realistic or that wouldn't happen. Mm. And you go, it's because you just weren't enjoying the film. The whole point is, if you were enjoying it, if the film was entertaining enough, 
yeah. you wouldn't care. Jeremy Dyson said a brilliant thing about horror films. He said one of the best things about black and white horror that got completely lost when horror went colour was that you were already making up the colour. So you're already leaning yeah. in and making a bit of the story up yourself, looking at dark areas of the screen and seeing ghosts in it. Yes. He said you were susceptible to suggestion the moment you went in and it didn't look like the outside world because a black and white two-dimensional square... Yes. You're ha- it's like reading a book. You have to make stuff up. Yes. So the audience is susceptible to suggestion in a way that when something looks like the real world, you sit back and there has to be a lot more gore and blood to arrest you. Yes, and certainly one of the things we desperately tried to do in, in Paddington, although I had not dr- joined these dots beforehand, was that I don't really like things set in the real world. I mean, that's <laughs> not to say I don't like realistic films. And I, I do, but but it's not something I would want to make. You know, like, yeah. again, like you say, I'm, I'm glad it exists, but it's not my personal cup of tea. And we really wanted to do what Jeunet did to Paris in Amelie, mm. uh, to London. And you sort of go, well, London is this wonderful city. And, and obviously it's got kind of not particularly interesting kind of identikit city storefronts and stuff. But it also has extraordinary beautiful buildings, amazing Victorian and Georgian architecture and this a great and cobbles and a sort of storybook texture. Yeah. And you go, well, can we find that? Because actually, I think in that world, I can believe a bear's walking down the street or someone's doing this. And, and I sort of lean in and I've always enjoyed those, that sort of Mary Poppinsification of, of the universe. Yeah. It's not dishonest, weirdly. It, it, it's seen as dishonest. Yes. And it's not, it's honest because it's looking for something. I, I often think that, I mean, there's, there's a psychology in this. It's really easy to spot what's wrong with things. It's really easy to sit outside something, not join in and go, you know what's wrong with this? Yes. Which is, now we've got basically an industrialised machine at our fingertips for complaining. It seems to be the <laughs> default tone of everything. Oh, I must work on the complaint machine again. Whereas, whereas to be persuaded that you want to join in with something and help it along yes. is very rare. Yes. And the moment a film comes and goes, you know this brightly coloured thing that doesn't quite look like Notting Hill? Can you join in and pretend it's Notting Hill? Yes. And then everyone goes, actually, I'm having fun. I'll join in. You yes. Go, now we're having fun together. Yes. Well, it's like a musical, isn't it? And again, you yeah. know, you've got... Oh, God, the default complaint. Yes. People don't burst into song. Oh, God, we're back to Hitchcock and Where Are the Cameras, aren't we? That lovely yeah, story the Bernard Herman. Yeah, when, when uh, Hitchcock was making Lifeboat, Bernard Herman said to him, so what sort of music do you want for this then, uh, Hitch? And he said, um, I'm not having any music, Benny. And Herman said, why not? And, and Hitchcock said, well, you tell me where the orchestra is on a lifeboat. <laughs> And Herman said, you tell me where the fucking cameras are. <laughs> the moment you, you make a film or a TV programme or anything and you turn up on set and realise the amount of work that's been done to make something look like an ordinary thing, mm. a normal place. Someone pointed out to me once, said, once you notice this, you can't unnotice this. I'm a huge Spielberg fan. Someone said, yeah, his set dresses are a bit busy, aren't they? And I went, oh, no, no, it's great. I went, oh, my God. Kids' bedrooms in Spielberg. Yes. No one could live in that clutter. Too many toys. No one could Too live in much that. smoke. You would put that stuff away. Yes. Someone in that house would put that Even stuff. a 10-year-old. That heightened reality felt real yes. growing up. You went, oh, it's clutter. Yes, and it's also a lovely thing. I think what that... I'm, I'm thinking of E.T. when you talk yeah. about that. Yeah. But what's great is you start looking around it and seeing and enjoying all those toys in exactly the same way E.T. is. And you yeah. sort of go, oh, okay. There's, it's a sort of maximalist loveliness. There's a wonderful... Mm. There's a brilliant shot in E.T. which I noticed last time I watched it when Henry Thomas runs the taps in the sink and a, and a wall of steam comes up and I watched that a hundred times and thought that's the steam from the sink and I watched it recently and went it's like a steam train's going by it's like he's lost in his went, how cold no, is his house yeah, no sink has ever done that but I went oh I accept the reality of it even though this as you said you go outside the, the, the fantasy world into what appears to be the real world and the real world is also heightened mm. 
which I, it happens in Harry Potter actually the the world of, of Privet Drive yes. they, is also a storybook world yes and you sort of go why did they need to build that set when there must be a million streets that look like that and you go yes but not as kind of stripped back and reduced you want that sort of Edward Scissorhands yeah, yeah. suburbia otherwise your worlds just break you know because obviously there's Wizarding World and there's Real World but what they're mo- mostly is is the world of Harry Potter where I've opened the cover of that book and I'm yeah. delving into this thing and I want to believe that everything's in that universe and I think that universe building's incredibly true Richard Ayuadi said this great thing about how being a director is about being the custodian of the tone and oh. I thought it was a great def- because a yeah. lot of what you do as director you're not really sure it's really a job you know you sort of go you've got these brilliant designers and brilliant costume designers and and you know composers and you go well I can't write a tune I can't I can barely dress myself so, <laughs> but there's so you sort of go what am I doing and you go well I'm having opinions and, I, and I'm sort of moulding it all together and basically trying to make sure it all exists in the same universe and what we did with our kids bedrooms in Paddington was take virtually all the stuff out because we wanted it to feel much more like a dollhouse or a sort of yeah. simple iconic thing so yeah. I remember we had this beautiful set and I got really used to walking around it and going this is nice and you know you know with the normal kind of meltdowns about can we move this wall 18 inches or whatever but sort of you know really getting very pleased with it and they're great set dresser but she put all this naturalistic stuff in it and I I really just didn't like it and so we just tidied it almost entirely away I don't really know why it just sort of felt you want the clean lines or something it was like a drawing yes I mean, exactly. the thing is that a lot of yeah. the stuff that, that you're doing in Paddington is is echoing Peggy Fortnum's illustrations in the books or the memory of those either wood animations where there's a slight simplified nature to yes. the environments. And it's not a real house. I mean, you know, mm. it's sort of... Occasionally people go, where is that house? It's lovely. And you go, what, the house with a spiral staircase? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not in the real world, you know. Yeah, people sort of... There's that thing where they go, well, the Browns appear to be uh, quite well off. Anyway, they didn't buy that house from an estate agent <laughs> in fantasy <laughs> Paddington land. It is a storybook house. It's what a what a, a big house feels like to a child. It's yes. And the glorious thing that that's the problem rather than the talking animal. I mean, I'll take the bear, sure. The <laughs> yeah, bear. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, she's an illustrator and yeah. uh, I mean, works in insurance. I don't know what sales she's got, but, uh, you know, <laughs> you just sort of go. it's very funny that that is the issue. London is the place for me. There's something that is rather lovely, or lucky maybe, though, is that the actual exterior, the street that you use in Primrose Hill for um, yes, uh, it's Kensington real. Gardens, is it looks magical as well, doesn't it? Yes. Well, it's just the most beautiful street, and it's one of those things you get from Googling magical London, because it was not a street I knew. I knew Primrose Hill, but the books are sort of set in Notting Hill, basically, Portobello Rose's local sort of shopping street. So I was sort of looking around there, but you sort of Google magical London, I kept seeing this street, those multicoloured houses I wanted to do. And then you sort of get very worked up about whether it's a problem that's not in the right area of London. Then you go, yeah, yeah who cares? It's no. the movies. There's, there's a great gag in the first Paddington film with Matt Lucas's I taxi totally driver. I totally forgotten that joke. Where, where he, dri- he drives around and you get all the London blonde yes. and the view out the window and the lovely lights going past. And when they arrive, he went all said, that's an unusual route. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Young, but I said never been to London. Show them the sights. That's great. It's a good joke about those kind of scenes. I had the very strange pleasure. This is uh, this. This should go. But of watching the that that film with with an orchestra last oh. Sunday, they did a oh, thing I at Drury Lane, and I hadn't seen it since it came out because, believe it or not, I don't kick back of a so Friday night and watch my own oeuvre. Yeah. They with, did, a, with a live orchestra yeah and Nick Urata the composer was over and like he was playing along with the band and well not the band the, the Ivan Novello orchestra have you know 
and uh, it was such a pleasure to have forgotten loads of the jokes oh, and sort lovely. of go oh yeah, yeah there's this and you go oh it's you know it's amazing to look at it through other people's eyes because I mean, we, we just got a book uh, delivered through the post which is the first copy of a book we just written I don't remember writing it because we wrote it in a fugue state of panic because the deadline was so tight and I read it last night and really laughed and I don't remember who wrote any of these jokes it yes. turned out it was me right. I, but I went, it was a real pleasure to, to feel what it I'm coming out of the premiere of Paddington 2 mm. and bumping to Simon Farnaby on the red carpet and our first reaction wasn't what a lovely film we both went oh we got away with that and you forget that your reaction for most things you do is have you got away with it <laughs> yes, exactly. only years later can you watch them with any pleasure and go oh that's why other people enjoyed it yeah I still thought we got away with it I mean we it's really get away it, with it. the holes in Paddington together with, with no one with bits of Salisbury. we're both in them very shoddy but hopefully I'm slowly very, learning to... well, they're very poor films yes, and exactly. no one likes them they're which is the problem rotten are you, uh, are you planning on doing any other well-loved children's characters beginning with P? It's funny you should ask. Uh, well, I'm working on Pinocchio at the moment for Disney, which is a great pleasure. Um, uh, so that uh, hopefully will be coming to a cinema in the next decade at some point. So That's a very uh, exciting wow. one to do. That is, I often say that's probably my favourite classic Disney. I really, I would like liked Pinocchio as a kid. Because it's the weird one. It's, and it's very a weird strange story. and it's very dark and it's uh, and it does lots of things that uh, uh, that you would not expect, like uh, kills off virtually all the children and leaves them turned into donkeys yeah. and doesn't sort of redeem them. And there's the baddie doesn't get their comeuppance. I'm finding it thrilling as a kid strange. to go. This is the morality of this is very different. It's got a sort of strawl paterish kind of. No, I, th- I think it's great and it's a very interesting story about what it means to become real, which is sort of mm. the, it's it's quite an odd thing, Pinocchio, because it's been made. I wouldn't like to say how often, but there are dozens of film versions of it which are virtually all atrocious. But there <laughs> really? is, but yeah, but there is something about that story that sort of demands to keep being told. And I think because the Disney one is is quite different from the book and works in very many ways, but also feels very much of its time. It feels yeah. like it's kind of low hanging fruit to go, well, let's just get that, dust that down and sort of sort it out and make another film. And you sort of go, I think it's going to be tricky to find the the modern version that, that works, but that's what I'm attempting to That's the challenge. Whoa. But then again, that's, that's the challenge of Paddington. Take Paddington, which is something set in the yes. time it's set and unregarded by people in a certain way and make it, effortlessly its own thing um, thank you for coming and talking about a brilliant film I hadn't seen and, and talking about Paddington my well, pleasure thank you very much thank you very much Paul thank King. you I'll see you in the writers room <laughs> <laughs>